morning's reading is from 1 Timothy 5, chapter 1 through to first, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honour widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Command these things as well, so that uh, they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the, the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that, if they may, so, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying out of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are also conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke, as bond servants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Matt. Uh, good morning. Um, if you don't know me, actually, I never do this, but I'm kind of warm already, so I'm going to shed a layer. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we have a lot to get through, so um, I'm going to pray for us one more time, and we'll jump in. Um, Father, um, as we come before you and approach your word, will you... Uh, would you teach us something new this morning? Uh, will you rebuke us where we have gone wrong? Will you correct us where we need it? And will you train us in all righteousness so that we can live with the good works that you have put aside for us? Uh, we ask you this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, you, you might be tired of this verse by now, but um, hopefully not, and hopefully you can nearly repeat it off by heart. Um, I'm going to read you the key verse of Paul's letter. We're nearly done. We have a, two more weeks after this in this letter, so you might hear this verse again. But the main reason that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to this young pastor and to this church in Ephesus is chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, I'm writing these things to you. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so you'll know by now that the church isn't a building, 
Uh, it's not uh, merely uh, something that you go to. It's actually a people that you are brought into. Um, it's, it's a family that you now belong to. It's the household of God that gathers. And, and really, Paul's main concern throughout this letter is, is how do we conduct ourselves properly as the household of God? How, how do we uh, be the family of God? What does that look like? And then, uh, why is that important as we then go out and reach people with this truth that we've been uh, given to be this kind of pillar and the buttress of the truth in the world. Um, and really, chapter 5 is a direct application of that big concern. Um, when my wife Jenny and I got married and we, we joined each other's families, um, we experienced this change with a relationship with some people that we didn't have a relationship with before, right? Um, I remember meeting Jenny's parents and her sister for the first time. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know you, you try to impress, right? You, you put on your best behavior, uh, wear maybe some nicer clothes, make sure that they like you. Um, but once we got married and they were stuck with me, and we, my guard comes down a little bit. And hopefully not in a, a bad way. Um, you, you become comfortable around them. And, and as a result, relationships begin to grow deeper, right? Um, you're invested in each other in a new way. You begin to feel what they feel in a certain level. Um, and Jenny does this far better than I do. Um, just this week, mom was over for, uh, for dinner. And if you're ever in my house um, between the, the times of like 5 o'clock and 10 o'clock, Jenny's a classic mother of three, and she doesn't sit down that often. Um, but when mom comes over, she does sit down, and she, she talks to her, and she listens to her, and they converse not to get her to like her any more than she already does, but because she's family now, right? That, that's something that she didn't have before. They're, they're invested in, in a new, deeper way because she's her mom as well. There, there's greater responsibility in those relationships now. And that's what family does, right? Um, family redefines the way that you think about each other and the way you, that you treat one another. And that's exactly what Paul is describing in chapter 5. In verses 1 to 2, he's, he's telling Timothy, when you become part of God's family, part of his household, that it redefines the way that you, you, you think and treat these people as well. Verse 1, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and all purity. And... Um, is that how you consider each other as you sit in this room together this morning? Is that how you, you treat one another when you come to church? Are, are these just people that you go to church with? Is this just your Sunday crowd? Um, or do you treat them like family? Um, I'll give you a quick age demographic breakdown uh, of our church. Um, there's a few few slides you can kind of follow along with me, David. Um, 65 people in our church are below the age of 20. The majority of them are below the age of 10. We have a lot of kids in our church. Um, 120 of you are between the ages of, of 20 and 39. And then there are just 25 people who are over the age of 40. Um, it's far younger than that. So go to the next slide. Um, if, you, if you break that into two categories, uh, 185 people in our church are below the age of 40, and 25 people are over the age of 40. Um, it's far younger than that, though, so go to the next slide. Um, if, you, if you extend the categories, 207 of us are under the age of 60, and there are three people who are over the age of 60. It's far younger than that, though, so go to the next stage. Um, we have one person... I'm not going to point at her. We have, we have one person who's over the age of 70. My point is, uh, we have a very, very young congregation. That's right. We'll get to that. Um, but when you, when you do look across the room and you see someone who's a little bit older, Ian, do you, do you look at Ian and you say... Uh, hey, not only is that he's a little bit older, I'm not saying old, older, he's really cool, um, but do you see just, oh, there's an older gentleman that I go to church with, or do you see a spiritual father? 
When you look across the room and you see one of our older women, do you, do you see a spiritual mother? Or, or flip that around. If you, if you are one of the few older folks that we have, do you look around and see, oh, there's a lot of young people that I go to church with, or do you see spiritual sons and daughters? And maybe even some grandkids. Do we treat each other as the family that God says we now are? And throughout this section we're looking at, um, Paul highlights a certain aspect of how we are to treat one another as family. There's lots of ways that you should treat each other, but he highlights something, and it's a word that you see in verse 3, verse 17, and again in chapter 6, verse 1, and it's the word honor. We are to honor one another. In Romans chapter 12, honoring one another is one of the the markers of of a true Christian. You can tell someone's a genuine Christian if they're honoring one another. And, and Paul highlights three groups that it seems the church in Ephesus are not doing a very good job of honoring. He speaks of honoring widows through the first 16 verses of chapter 5. I think it's remarkable that he spends most of his time on that group, on widows. In verse 17, he, he turns and he, he looks at the overseers of the church, and he says, let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor. And then in the first two verses of chapter 6, he says, we should regard masters as worthy of honor. That'll take a little bit of explaining. But um, before we look at those, those groups, um, it's really important to understand that the, the Bible was, was really written into an honor and shame culture. Um, and still the majority of the world lives in an honor and shame culture, uh, where we in the West are, are mostly driven by money and personal success. Um, much of the world is driven by honor. Um, if you ask a, an average Westerner what they're concerned with about the future, it's, it's usually financial security, Um, retirement, plans, homes. But if you go to somewhere like Asia, usually at the top of the list of future concerns is who's going to take care of my mom? Because there's an honor and a shame culture. And the Bible is written in an honor and shame culture. And so some of this is, is more difficult for us to understand because honor is less and less a thing of importance in our society. It's actually sometimes a really odd and awkward thing when we encounter it. Uh, but we need a revival of honor, especially in the church. And it's all throughout the, the New Testament, especially. And so, um, uh, Ephesians 6, Paul quotes the Old Testament. He says, honor your father and mother. 1 Peter 2, Peter says, honor everyone. Honor the emperor. He's speaking of a pagan emperor who's persecuting Christians, but honor him. 1 Peter 3, honor, husbands, honor your wives. Hebrews 3, let marriage be held in honor. It's, it's honor, honor, honor. And probably most applicable for us today is uh, Romans 12, like I, that, that I mentioned, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor, right? Make it a contest. See who can be the best at it. Outdo one another in showing honor. Does that describe our church? Does it describe your experience of our church? Just outdoing one another in showing honor. And so let's look at these groups that Paul highlights for honor in the Ephesian church um, in each of these cases, without the family of God showing honor to one another, the witness of the church in the world would be compromised. So, so there's always that outward um, reason for the inward actions. To put it in the language of chapter 3, if we, if we do not conduct ourselves properly in here, then we're not being a very good pillar and a buttress of truth so it can be seen by others out there. And I think what you see throughout chapter 5 is it's a real... It's a very real passage. Um, It's really practical. Paul's combining godly discernment and practical wisdom and advice on how to actually do this well. Because in the church, there's a lot of needs, right? There's a lot of spiritual needs. There's a lot of practical needs that we must pay careful attention to. And so Paul gives some really helpful instructions to Timothy here. Here's the big idea that I think we can take away from the chapter. God's family must act with discernment so that as honor is given properly inside the church, the gospel will be respected outside the church. So verse 3, the first group that Paul highlights uh, for the family of God are the widows who are truly in need. Uh, I'm guessing you haven't heard many um, sermons on applying the gospel and treatment of widows. Um, I haven't heard a lot, and that probably means we have a lot to to learn still about uh, how to conduct ourselves properly as the household of God. In the Bible, typically the widows and the orphans and the sojourners were kind of running buddies. And whenever you see them, they're, they're usually always mentioned together. And, and it's because they're the most vulnerable in society. 
Um, it's obvious why orphans are vulnerable. Uh, widows, imagine a, a, a society without the, the kind of goodwill elements that we have. This is a world without pensions. Uh, there, there's no uh, elderly homes. There's no NHS, no insurance. And so a widow who was left alone was in a desperate situation. And so God's people were really instructed to take care of these people. They, they were to be included in the worship assembly. The farmers were to leave parts of their crops behind so that these vulnerable people could come along and, and take from it. God, God had a solution for the widow-orphan problem in the world, and his solution was his people. And, and so it, it makes sense here in the New Testament, in this letter about how to be the church, God's household, that we are to continue to have a concern for the widow. And in fact, God takes this title for himself in Psalm 68, verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widow. That's one of the titles of God. Isn't that amazing? He's the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. And you'll know of a number of well-known widows in the scripture. Think of Ruth and Naomi, uh, the widow of Nain in the Gospel of Luke, that she, she lost her son, and then Jesus raises him from the dead, and everyone says, God has visited us. Um, we should be familiar with the persistent widow of Luke 18, this, this widow that, that Jesus kind of elevates and says she teaches us how to pray desperately and persistently and boldly, uh, the widow who gives her might, and Jesus says she's a, a model of generosity. And really throughout the Bible, widows are lifted and here in 1 Timothy, Paul is really just reflecting that. Um, in Acts chapter 6, we've uh, talked about recently, this is really one of the first problems within the early church that they're to deal with. The, the Greek-speaking widows who were being neglected. And so Paul basically gives Timothy three instructions regarding widows. Uh, the first instruction is determine responsibility, filter the candidates, and then enlist them for service. We'll just kind of make our way through that. Uh, first instruction, determine responsibility. Uh, he says basically, figure out who's to be caring for these widows. In verse 3, he says, honor and care for widows who are truly widows. In other words, who are truly in need. But if they have children and grandchildren, if they have family, let them first show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So he's, he's pointing out that the, the primary responsibility for the caring of the widows is their biological family. And in verse, six, verse 16, after speaking of a dip, couple different types of widows, he kind of circles around and says again that families should care for the widows in their household. And he says, so the church will not be burdened. Um, Paul's, Paul's a church planter. Like he, he, he recognizes that the church has limited resources. It, it, this is a practical thing. A single church can't care for every single widow in the city. So if she has a family, that's where the, the, the primary responsibility lies. And so he's speaking about widows who are truly in need. Um, it, it, the, the Greek in verse 4 can be translated as, as the, the children and the grandparent, children and the grandchildren of these widows should pay them back, right? So, so when your parents get old, it's, it's payback time. And, and that's a real biblical thing. Um, I, I think of the, the family that, that I grew up in. We never had a lot of money, um, but I never remember thinking as a child where the next meal is going to come from or if we're going to be able to do a certain thing. And the reason was because my parents worked really hard. And here Paul says, when they get older, make sure you do the same for them. Make sure you're caring for them when they need you. Um, but, Paul says, sadly, there are widows who don't have family members. And that's when the church should step in. That's when the, the secondary help comes. So in verse 5, he says, if she's truly in need, right, if she's all alone and she has set her hope on God and she continues in prayer night and day, who does that sound like? Sounds like the persistent widow in Luke 18, okay? The, the widow that, that, that Jesus lifts up for our, as a model for our prayer life. If, if th that, that widow who had no one else to turn to. And Paul says, if this is what she's like, in need, no one else to help, and, and, and eyes fixed on the Lord, and, and living a life of prayer and dependence, then you should make sure that she's taken care of. He says there are some widows that the church shouldn't support. So the second point is you should filter the candidates, and verse 6, he says, but if she is self-indulgent, she is dead even when she lives. You're thinking, man, Paul, these are, these are poor old ladies, right? Yes, but he's, he's also saying there's not an age limit to living a godly life. 
There's sensitivity here. There's, a, there's, there's health things. There's mental health things that sometimes you struggle with when you get older. But he's saying in generally that there's not a, a time when you stop or having to be godly. Above reproach, as he says in verse 7, everyone in the household, if they've professed faith in, in Jesus, regardless of life stage, is called to set their hopes on God and, and to live a life of, of dependence on him and to live above reproach. You see this, this principle that Paul introduces, the, that mercy ministries should usually be accompanied with a sense of responsibility on the behalf of those who are receiving help. Um, something that you see throughout the, the scriptures, um, I'll get into this in a minute, but I think this is what's going on here in chapter 5, when, when some of these widows who met these qualifications and were being supported financially by the church, they in return would serve the church. I think that's what he's talking about in verse 9 when he says about enrolling them. We'll get to that. But what Paul's pointing out here is, is again, you are the household of God. You, you are family now. And in family life, you don't just consume, you give as well. Um, some of us have, sadly, have fam- family members that are like this, right? They, they just take and take and take and never give back. And, and that either describes a, 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 a child in the family, which is expected, or a, a, a dysfunctional adult family member. And it happens because we're broken. But, but Paul is, is pointing to us being a healthy family, right? That we, we don't just consume, we, we participate and we give back. And here with these widows, you, you show honor and dignity to a person by giving them responsibility. So, so if she's just going to spend it all self-indulgently, right, down to the bookies, just kind of wasting it away, then the church can't continue to support her financially. There, there's there's, there's a, 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 an issue to be dealt with there. So if she just wants to live it up selfishly, she needs to realize, Paul says, that she's actually already dead. Right? You're, you're, you're on the path to destruction, you're not on the path to life. So he says, command these things. Give, give these instructions. And in verse 8, he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. So again, he's saying, take care of your families. And he's not putting down unbelievers here. He's actually kind of putting them on a pedestal as an example um, because God has given us a, a conscience. He's, he's given us a moral law within us. We, we understand this, that there are parental instincts in all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, and, and here even the unbelievers in Ephesus are doing a good job of this. They, they have a sense of responsibility for their own families. How much more should the people of God, because we have this specific revelation given to us in the Bible? So, uh, determine responsibility, filter the candidates, and lastly, enlist them for service. Look at verses 9 to 10. He says, Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself for every good work. Uh, someone once said that uh, reading Paul's letters is like listening to one end of a, f- a telephone conversation. And it, it makes it tricky to really determine what exactly is, is he talking about here. So it's important to look at the wider context, look at the rest of the letter. And, but this is one of those passages that's, that's kind of tricky to determine what exactly is going on here. What exactly is Paul saying? That, that word enroll in verse 9 can either mean something like put them on a list or it can mean to enlist them. And there's, there's varying uh, perspectives on this. Some will say that, that Paul is saying, make sure there's a list of the widows that the church is helping financially. Keep, keep track of this. Keep records. Um, others conclude that this is a, a number of widows who have been enlisted into service in the church. Um, I think it's probably both. Th- those that, who are receiving financial help were these widows who met a certain qualification and were supported, but then some of them, if they're physically able, would, would be on a service list or put on a ministry team. Um, here's why um, there's some good reasons why you can consider this as a recognized role or a ministry team in the church. Firstly, uh, notice the, the strictness of the qualifications that were on this list. Verses 9 and 10, they, they should sound familiar because we've just gotten another couple sets of list of qualifications in chapter 3 for other uh, roles in the church. 
And, and this is similar to that. He says, make sure she's above 60 years of age. Of, 60 years of age. Um, that's considered elderly at the time. It's probably more like 80 for us, okay? So even our older folks, you're spring chickens. Um, he's saying, make sure she's, she's, she's elderly. Um, having been the, the wife of one husband, again, similar to the chapter 3 qualifications, uh, I think he's saying fidelity in her past marriage, uh, reputation for good works, she's uh, brought up children, she's shown hospitality, she's washed the feet of the saints. Who's that sound like? It's Jesus. He washes the feet of the saints, um, has, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. I don't think it's an exhaustive list. I think Paul is saying, make sure she's an upright, godly woman. Let her continue in these things. She's, she's shown hospitality. She's, she's shown her Christ-likeness and her care for others. May she continue serving the church in this way. Another reason why this might not just be merely a support list is, is because the following verses are kind of difficult to interpret if we only take it as a widow support list. Because Paul then says to refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from, for their passions will draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Um, some, some translations will render that phrase, former faith, as previous pledge. So she's abandoned her previous pledge. And so what, what, if you take it like that, what seems to be going on here is there were older, more elderly widows who would be committed to not being married. And again, think of the, the realness of the passage. I want to be gentle here, but usually elderly women aren't usually thinking about their next relationship, right? So he says they'll, they'll kind of take this pledge, devote themselves to uh, serving the church, and the church would in turn support them. They would pledge to remain single in this way. And so Paul is saying for the younger widows, I don't want them to take this pledge because they'll abandon their pledge and they'll incur, I don't think eternal condemnation, but a more practical kind of condemnation. They'll, they'll not be able to fulfill their commitment that they've made to the church. He says, I'd rather these, these younger ladies, ladies who, who, who are young and, and have passions, will, I don't want them to be drawn away from their prior commitment to serving the church in this way. That's one way to look at it. If Paul is, is, is speaking of their former faith as their actual faith in Jesus, then it seems that he has a concern that these, these younger widows will be tempted to be married to unbelievers, which would be a terrible mistake. Either way, if there's, there's good reason to believe that he's talking about a ministry team here, enrolling them into service. Um, th there's hints of this in Acts chapter 9 with, with Dorcas, which is a lovely name. She, she's devoted to good works. She has many of these char character qualities. And, and remember, she dies, and Peter shows up. He raises her from the dead. And twice it says that the saints and the widows were, were there present. Um, it, it's quite possible that the widows had this kind of ministry team, if you will. So probably some of them were supported for the good of the church and would agree to serve in this way. Um, if you read church history, by the third century, there, there's already an official group of widows recognized in the church for this particular type of service. Um, not suggesting that we'll create a, uh, uh, we have elders and deacons and then maybe like an, a widow role, but I think there's some, some applications for what's going on here. Um, if you're confused, let me read you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, because I think he kind of captures what's maybe happening here. He puts it this way. Sign some widows up for the special ministry of offering assistance. They will in turn receive support from the church. They must be over 60, married only once, have a reputation for helping out with children, strangers, tired Christians, the hurt and the troubled. Don't put younger widows on the list. No sooner will they want to get on that they'll want to get off, obsessed with wanting to get a husband rather than serving Christ in this way. By breaking their word, they're liable to go from bad to worst, frittering away on days of empty talk, gossip, and trivialities. No, I'd rather the younger widows go ahead and get married in the first place, have children, manage their homes, and not give critics any foothold for finding fault. Some of them have already left and gone after Satan. Um, captures uh, possibly what's, what's going on there. Um, what's the application? How, how do we apply this for our church today? Um, a couple things. Firstly, we need to, again, recognize the importance of women within the church. 
And Paul, Paul recognizes them over and over again. However we decide to interpret the kind of tricky section, you see from the rest of the New Testament that women served a really important role uh, in the, the early church, and they, they should in ours. Um, I'm telling you, if, you, if you remove the women from our church, we, we close our doors the next day. We can't go on. We need both godly men and women for our church to, to be a, a full, thriving church. Um, secondly, we need to care for widows in our context. Um, again, Paul is writing to a very specific context here. So we must ask ourselves, who are we to pay special attention to in our context? Um, let me read you one way that um, a pastor in, uh, in Wheaton, Illinois, called Kent Hughes, he, he kind of um, contextualized it in this way. He said, today, the application of this message should be wider because modern Western culture has produced a category of women virtually unknown in the first century, Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow, and those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. So we, we don't have a lot of older widows in the church, um, but we do have some single moms. And if, I'm telling you, if we reach more of the community around us, that number will go up. Um, spend some time in the community center next door, and there's, it's filled with single moms with very little family support. Um, as a pastor of the church, I want to confess that we could be doing a better job of this. Um, if, if, if you're a single mom in our church with no family support and you feel like we could be doing a better job of honoring you in this way, um, I'm sorry. Um, from, from time to time, I speak to, to older pastors or other pastors who have older congregations um, who really struggle uh, to, to kind of gather in a younger generation. And usually they'll, they'll tell me, man, I'm really, really jealous of your young people. And I always say, I'm, I'm thankful for them, but I'm jealous for your older people. Um, because a, a church that has plenty of older saints is able to do a lot more. Much ministry is done uh, because of faithful older saints. Uh, and maybe the Lord will give us more Maybe we just need to be faithful, and then you guys are going to be the old people in the church one day, and we'll be able to do even more. But um, when, when you, I'm going to speak to everyone here. When you have a church, think of those demographics. When you have a church that's mostly made up of 20s and 30s people, many of you are starting careers. Many of you are starting families. Many of you are still growing up. Um, I know that a lot of us feel like you're just keeping your head above the water, Right? Um, it's, it's a lot to serve. On one hand, um, I want to recognize that. Okay, I see you. God sees you. This is, this is difficult work, being part of his church. But I also want to gently say that those things aren't an excuse. Because this is the household of God. Right? We, we've been brought in from having no hope at all to being part of God's family. Right? We, we're the, the household of God, his family that is empowered by his spirit, and no one should feel abandoned. Right? No one should feel at need, in need. Everyone should be cared for. And, and Paul makes it clear uh, discernment is needed in this. There, there's, there's, there's an accountability aspect here, church's family, right? and that means the, the, the members of the church should be giving and receiving and we should be striving for godliness, just like Paul is calling these widows to here, to, to set their hopes on God, to live lives of, of prayer and dependence and, and being above reproach, and for the church to call all of us to that kind of life, but also to help you in your time of need. And so let me encourage us all. I know life is busy. I know life is hard, but let's honor one another. Let's, let's outdo one another in the way that we can help those who have little support. Um, I'm highlighting specifically some single moms. Ask yourself, how can I help? I'm telling you, it's probably something pretty small that'll go a long way to help support love and honor. Let's outdo one another in this. Um, we want to do a better job of making sure that everyone is, is cared for. And I love the stories of, of how you are doing this. I'm not saying we're just terrible at this. 
Um, so many stories of you actually honoring one another. Um, it's happening, but let's outdo one another in it. Um, it's not sensational stuff, okay? It's not uh, something you'll put up on, on the gram, right? I feel old. Right there, I felt old. <laughs> I know. Um, this is what the church should be known for, right? Being like our Father, who's the Father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. We should reflect His nature in this way. Uh, there's a lot we could contextualize and pull out of these verses, but I'll leave it there for now. Honor widows. Um, I'll go fast over the next section um, because it's awkward. It's pretty hard to, to preach how you should be honoring me without it sounding self-serving. Um, but the next group Paul highlights for honor is elders. Verse 17, let the, honors, the elders who rule well or lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And Paul says this another time in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. He says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so Paul says, make sure you're honoring uh, those who are leading and directing in your church, especially those who are teaching and preaching the Bible because they're laboring. It's, preaching is labor. It's, it's very tiring work. For a lot of pastors, it's, it's thankless work. It's, it's more than you see on a Sunday. It, 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 it involves hours of, of prayer and study. There's spiritual war going on that affects not just the pulpit and the study, but home. So Paul says, make sure they who are laboring among you, you're, you're honoring them. And then he quotes the Bible in verse 18. He quotes Deuteronomy 25. It says, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Um, he's basically saying, if the ox is going to plow the field all week for you, let him eat. And then he quotes Jesus in Luke 10, which is incredible. It's, I won't get into that, but it's the, look at the scripture already coming alive here. He's quoting uh, uh, the gospel of Luke when Jesus sends out the, the 72 for mission. And he says, the laborer deserves his wages. And there, there were times when Paul didn't take a wage for his work. There are times when he did. And I don't think he's saying that pastors should be uh, super wealthy, that they should have uh, the biggest houses, uh, but they need to eat, right? They, they need to provide for their families, which is what he's just been talking about in the previous chapter. Um, I love the analogy that you're an ox if you're an elder. Like, you're not a rock star. You're, you're not the star of the show. You're an ox <laughs> plowing a field. A um, couple things that he notes. Firstly, compensation. We've said that the laborer deserves his wages. Secondly, accusation. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, this is straight out of Deuteronomy. Um, you say, be very cautious of accusing them of certain things. Again, I want you to see this, the theme of discernment through the chapter, discerning how to take care of those widows, discerning how to uh, deal with grievances here. Honor each other by, by being wise. Uh, hey, elders aren't perfect. You can see that in the next, the next verse that says there are times when they are at fault. He's simply saying, be careful not to simply accept any old charge against them um, because people have agendas, right? Pe people will, will want to sometimes take down an elder or a pastor for sinful reasons or for out of lack of wisdom or maturity. Yes, this, the, the church is made up of former sinners who are now saints in, in Jesus, uh, but we're still battling sin, all of us. So he's saying have wisdom, have discernment for how you deal with these grievances. Be cautious. Let there be witnesses. But for those who persist in sin, Paul tells Timothy to rebuke them in the presence of all so that everyone may stand in fear. Right? So, so the other elders and the church should stand in fear as a pastor is rebuked publicly when he's committed public persistent sin. Um, notice it's not every sin. Um, we, we don't rebuke a, a publicly a pastor for every one of their sins. We wouldn't leave here today if that was the case. Um, this is persistent, unrepentant sin in the public. It's like Galatians 2 where, where Paul rebukes Peter in front of everyone when he was sinning in that way. So it's done in the presence of all to see the gravity of the problem and the nature of sin. Um, he's, you see how he's doing both things? He's not protecting the boys club. Okay, he's, he's saying, have discernment. Be cautious in how you approach this. But if these accusations are real, he says, deal with them seriously. Right? Be aggressive in killing sin in the church. 
And in verse 21, he says, uh, Jesus and all the angels back me up in this, so take it seriously. After he talks about compensation and accusation, he talks about ordination. That's good. Good, good points there. <laughs> I stole them. Um, he says, don't be hasty in appointing someone to the office of elder. Take your time. Get it right. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. He says, go slowly. Make sure they meet those chapter 3 qualifications. It can be devastating for your church if you appoint the wrong person. Do it right. Do it slow. And then in verse 23, Paul gives Timothy a little gastrointestinal advice. Um, he tells him to take a little wine for his stomach and his frequent ailments. I don't know why. It seems Timothy had some stomach issues. Maybe it's the stress of the job. I know what that's like a little bit. Can it be said? No, I'm not going to, no. Um, it says, Paul, look after yourselves. <laughs> take care of your body. And then verses 24 and 25, Paul points out a, a couple of things to consider as you think about elders and you think about your church, these, these are the reasons why you don't rush into things with appointing new elders. First of all, verse 24, because the sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. So he points out there's, there are people where their sins are, are clear, right? Their sins are obvious. It's, it's obvious why you wouldn't appoint this person as an elder. Everyone sees it. Everyone knows it. But then he, he says that the sins of others appear later, right? That there are some, some sins that are hidden that will be revealed later. Okay, it, it'll take some time for their good and bad points to, to come to the surface. There, there needs to be time to uh, discover the truth about a candidate is why you take things slowly. But then in verse 25, he says the opposite is true. Not only is that true about the, 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 the sin in your life, it's also true about the, the good things in your life. He says some good works are conspicuous, right? Everyone sees those good works. It's obvious that person is, 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 fulfills that, those qualifications. But also some good works take a while to be seen. They won't be hidden forever, and that's really encouraging. There are some good works that take a little while to be seen. Don't be discouraged by that if that's you. So two things are needed. Discernment is needed and time is needed for proper discernment, to go slowly. Make sure you get this right. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders about fierce wolves coming in to destroy the flock. We don't, we don't want that to happen. And so we take our time to discern the character of potential elders. All right, so when considering elders, some are obviously rejected, some are committing hidden sins that were revealed eventually, unfortunately, and some are obvious natural leaders, evident to all, and some, it'll take a little while. Um, regardless of, of becoming a potential elder or not, um, those are, that's an excellent uh, self-examination for yourself. Like, like, those are great questions to ask. Of, does this describe me? Like, are you someone where the good works are observable, observable in your life? Do people say to you, that, that's someone that I, I love my, my, my child to grow up like? Or are you someone who's hiding in sin? Maybe you need to bring that hidden sin to light and deal with it with a brother or sister. I had someone come to me this week and, and deal with some hidden sin, and it's a beautiful thing. Don't hide your sin. It will destroy you. Or maybe you're the hidden quiet type who's just faithfully serving away in the background. If, if that's you, keep going. Be faithful. Jesus sees you even if others don't, even if it's taken a while for others to, to notice. Every good work will be revealed in the last day. And I think we'll be surprised by who will receive double honor in the last days. Keep being faithful. Finally, uh, we're nearly done. The last group is honor superiors. Um, don't have time to go, go into a diatribe on slavery, but we, we, we got to understand that slavery in this context is much different than slavery in a modern context. There were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. A third of Ephesus were slaves. Imagine that. Uh, slaves could own slaves. Uh, slavery wasn't a racial thing. Um, Paul does condemn enslavers. He does that in, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Remember, enslavers were on that list of lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners. 
He condemns enslavers in his letter to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, but it's different. Many people would voluntarily put themselves in servitude in the first century. And these bond servants were domestic servants and, and farm laborers, but also clerks and craftsmen, teachers and soldiers and managers. There were slaves in upper, upper levels of politics and leadership. Different world than, than, than we know. Um, and, and so although the Bible doesn't endorse slavery, it, it undermines it. And so basically what Paul is trying to answer is, is how should you live as a Christian in the world that we are in? And so one way we could apply this this text for us today is is how should you live under your boss or your manager or your supervisor? How should you, you, you should honor those who are over you. And he basically says two things. Firstly, honor your employer to make Jesus look good. Okay, your witness. Let all those who are under the yoke of bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Right, so again, there's that, that outward result of, of how we act as, as children of God. When, when you go to work, the, the name of God is on display. The gospel should be on display in your lives. If you have an unbelieving supervisor, this can be really hard. I've, I've been in that situation you may disagree with them, but you're not to dishonor them. Um, he goes on to say, uh, also, don't take advantage of your employer if he or she is a Christian. So just because they're a brother or sister doesn't mean you can be lazy or, or slack off. You, you have all the more reason to serve them well. Beloved, you are a family. So he says, honor your supervisors. Do you see how the text just, just spills with honor and honor and honor? Honor each other as family, as 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 fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Honor the, the vulnerable in your midst who lack support, like widows or single moms or some single people without children. Make sure you're looking after them. Uh, honor your, your leaders. Honor your superiors. And really all this should lead to the main question is, is do you honor Jesus? Right? If the reason Paul is writing this letter is that we know how to conduct ourselves as the household of God, as his family. Well, Jesus is the head of that family. Okay, it's, it's through his death on the cross, it's through his blood that we are brought into this family. And so loving and honoring Jesus, it should result in loving and honoring those around us as well, especially members of God's household. Right? There's a good chance that if you're, if you're making it your aim to honor Jesus, then you're going to be honoring these people as well. It's good evidence that the former is true. And the reason is because when we're following Jesus, he's, he did all of these things perfectly, right? As he was hanging on the cross, he tells John, take care of my mother. That was his concern in his dying moments, is his family and a widow. What about elders? Jesus is the chief shepherd, Peter says, He's the, he's the lead pastor of our church. The elders are just under shepherds. We, it's our job just to repeat his words every week. He, he deserves all honor as the chief shepherd. What about slaves? Philippians 2 says, Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Same word. He, he came from heaven to earth to be a servant to all. He did these things perfectly, and at the end of this letter, we'll get to in a couple weeks, Paul says, uh, Jesus is coming again, right? He is coming again, and he says he's, he's the, the blessed and, and sovereign, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor, an eternal dominion. That's for Jesus, right? All honor belongs to Jesus. And so we must make it our first goal to honor him, right? We honor Jesus, the one who went to the cross in our place in shame, hanging there, beaten, naked, shamefully, dying in our place as the ones who dishonored God, as the ones who dishonored those around us. And then he rose three days later from the grave in all honor and glory and power. And he's coming back again to make his honor known. And so until we bow our knees with the rest of creation to honor his name, let's outdo one another in showing honor in the present.
right? That, that looks like being the household of God. Honoring Jesus by honoring those around us. And when we live in this way, it's a living witness to the truth of the gospel to those outside the church. It's hard work, but it's what we're called to. And just stand with me and we'll pray. I just want to take a minute to uh, just close your eyes and uh, reflect for a minute. I prayed this prayer at the start. I just want to say it again. Um, Father, as we uh, sit with your word, will you teach us something new? Will you rebuke us where we are wrong? Will you bring correction where we need it? Will you train us in all righteousness so that we may live with the good works that you have put aside for us? So let's take a minute just to, just to examine ourselves, examine our, our personal lives and then our corporate lives. Are we honoring one another in this way? Where, where have we failed? If you, Lord, would you, would you help us to see that now? Lord, would you, uh, would you put it in our hearts now, um, maybe just one way that we can step out in obedience and honor someone in our midst? How do we outdo one another in showing honor? And Father, we... And we thank you that, again, you do not leave us alone as your children to figure this out. And you give us your word uh, to be a light to our path, to show us the way forward. And you give us your spirit to guide us, to write your, your law inside of our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you... Um, your word is active, it's living, it, it kind of slices us open and it shows us what we need to, to change. And Lord, would you help us to, to, to lift our eyes off of ourselves and place them on you. And Lord, to see others the way that you see others. Give us the compassion that you have, Lord. We do not find that anywhere within ourselves. we find that with you. Would you give us that gift, Lord? We thank you, Jesus, for the ways that you deserved all honor and yet you received none. And you went to the cross in our place to pay for our sin, to take the, the penalty upon yourself, and Lord, that so that we could be brought into your family. Lord, may that righteousness be evident in our lives may not just be something that we confess with our mouths, but it's evident in the way that we live our lives. We are the household of God now. As Spirit be so active and so moving in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.